from that famous chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You'll find it on page 100, 1154. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but we're going to start with the last half of the last verse of the previous chapter. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love but the greatest of these is love thank you bob good evening everyone let me add my welcome to christchurch to you all uh, my name is andrew i'm one of the associate ministers here and we're going to dive straight into this famous passage uh, but first of all, imagine that two new people start coming along to Christchurch. Gradually, they start showing an interest in becoming serving members and joining the church family. Uh, and when you, when you hear that they're joining the church family, which of these two people are you more excited about? So the first is a man called Joseph. He seems like a very mature, experienced Christian. He's been part of other churches, bigger churches than ours. 
He's been involved in leading small groups. He's been doing some Bible teaching. He's experienced and serving on summer camps. His job has a lot of responsibility. And when you're chatting to him, he tells you about how he's been able to use some of those skills in leadership roles at church. The second person is a woman called Gabriella. She doesn't seem to have had as much church experience as Joseph. And when you chat to her about maybe serving on a team in church, she's a bit nervous about it. She's a quieter person than you are. However, you've noticed how she's always there each Sunday. She talks to the other quiet people. And you've heard how she's been getting stuck into a small and local group. In fact, when your family was going through a tough time, she was one of the people to say that she was praying for you and asking if there was anything she could do. So as Joseph and Gabriella stand up at the front of church to commit themselves to Christchurch and the congregation affirms them, which of these two new members are you most excited about? Which of them would you most like to be like? Which of them do you think will help our church the most? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 wasn't given to us tied up with a ribbon as part of some nice church handbook about what to say when you've next got a wedding. It was given here in in this context. It was given by God. It was breathed out by God between 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14. It was given to this church in Corinth, first of all, if you like, as the rose between two quite thorny chapters. Paul's addressing conflicts that have divided this church. And our chapter, this famous chapter, well, it's like the the key antidote, the key medicine in the middle. It's what this church needs to take and continue to take. They need it in order to counter harmful, false ideas that were weaving their way into church and threatening the very life and health of church. These false ideas are just... They were part of the culture around them, but they'd become part of church culture too. They included things like thinking, well, the more gifted you are, that must mean the more spiritually mature you are. And actually, there's a hierarchy in gifts. Some gifts are are way more important than others. That was another false belief this church held. And before we turn our noses up at them and thank God that we know better, we do well to examine our own hearts and our own culture of the way we do things. Are we those who are more concerned with growth in the size of our congregation than we are with individuals growing to be more like Jesus? Are we more concerned with who our brothers and sisters are in Christ than we are about what they do in church? We can easily, if we're not careful, be more excited by, more attracted to the gifted Josephs than we are the loving Gabriellas. And where that is so, we too need to change. The way of change is an excellent way. It's a most excellent way, as we read there. That's how this chapter is introduced God's always been in the business of making a way for his people, a path for them from somewhere bad to somewhere good, from death to life, from sin to salvation. His paths are never easy paths, but they lead to life. 
God in the Old Testament made a a way through the sea for his people, from slavery to freedom. He made a way for them through the desert. And today he calls people to follow the way of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so empowered and motivated by this love of Christ, this sacrificial love that Jesus has for us, we, the church, we, his people, are meant to be those who show this same love for one another. So what is love in the life of a church? Three things. Firstly, love is essential. Looking at this first paragraph here, love is essential. If you've ever looked at a job advert or a job description or you've sent off for details of a job that you're interested in, uh, a lot of the time employers will group different skills and abilities or experiences into the categories of desirable and essential. They'd like you to have the desirable skills, but they really can't employ you if you don't have the essential qualities that they're looking for. And in addressing this church family about their life together, Paul's making the point here that whatever else they, they desire to see in church, whatever else they'd like to see happen in their life together... Love is essential. Love is absolutely essential. And so what Paul does is, in these first three verses, he sort of sets himself up as a hypothetical example. He's saying, look, here's, here's a pretend guy, a bad example, someone, an example to reject, a negative example. Don't be like this guy. But as we read about this guy, it seems like he's got a lot going for him. So if we scan down there, verses 1 to 3... Even by Corinthian standards, he was quite impressive, this hypothetical example that Paul's given here. He would have turned heads in this church. He'd taken speaking in tongues or languages to new heights. Nobody was a better prophet than him, and while his faith, it could move mountains. If this guy really existed, he would have been well known for giving away loads to people in need, He would have been known for suffering on behalf of others. But missing this vital ingredient of love, a person like like this, spiritually speaking, is nothing. Nothing. And this person's identity is unpacked quite dramatically as, as the verses continue. So, We're told that a person like this, verse 1, is only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So without love, even with all your gifts, even with the best, most envied gifts, without love, you're essentially just a lot of noise. Even worse than that, these cymbals that that we hit uh, are great, but it takes somebody to hit them. They, they don't have life in and of themselves. They are inanimate. They are lifeless objects. Yes, they make a sound, but they don't produce that sound themselves. There's no life in them. And this is what Paul's saying about such people who don't have love. And the drama builds. So verses 2 to 3, the key words here in these sentences are all and nothing. So if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I give all I possess to the poor, so if you or I or anyone else does all of these things but do not have love, 
then spiritually speaking, what are we? Nothing. All this, all that, all the other, no, we're nothing. Without love, verse 2, Paul says, I am nothing. Without love, verse 3, I gain nothing. Even giving away all you have, giving yourself over to, to hardship on behalf of somebody else, these can be good things to do, but if they're not motivated by the love of Christ then really it can't be called truly Christian behavior. If there is no love involved, there is no Christian life, no Christian living. In fact, this language of gaining nothing at the end of verse 3 almost has salvation overtones to it. So imagine to stand before God at the end of your life, maybe a life where you've done so much with all your gifts, And you point to your achievements with your gifts before God. And you say, Lord, look, didn't I do this and that in and around the church for years with these wonderful gifts that you gave me? Surely that means I am welcome into your everlasting kingdom. Well, without love, such pleas are nothing. They gain nothing. Eternal life is only the possession of those who have experienced the love of the eternal God and His Son, Jesus, and who have naturally just shown that love to others. How did Jesus put it the night before He died? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you speak in the tongues of men and angels, if you fathom all mysteries and knowledge, if your faith moves mountains, If you give all that you have to the poor, if you give your body over to hardship, is that it, Jesus? Is that how people are going to know we are your disciples? No. John 13, verse 34. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Don't be a gifted person that amounts to nothing. In the life of a church family, love is not just desirable, it's essential. Let's look down again at verse 1 to 3. Why don't we sort of read through it again? And where Paul mentions different gifts and different services, in your head, just try and substitute your own gifts and services into what he's saying here. So replace with these things with what, what you do in church or maybe what God's gifted you to do. So we could say things like, if I preach a a great sermon without love, I'm only a lifeless noise. If I set the chairs out every week without love, spiritually speaking, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm nowhere. If I give serious amounts of money to church each month without love, I gain nothing. If I do the jobs that nobody sees, that nobody thanks me for, but I do them without love, I am nothing. For most of us this evening, it's true, and we know deep down that we have experienced the love of God in Christ. And so this this paragraph will be a reminder for us to keep showing that love more and more together in our church life, and we'll think more about how we'll do that shortly. But for a smaller number of us, I think this first paragraph might be a real wake-up call 
Perhaps you thought you knew what church was all about. But actually, in your definition of church, love wasn't anywhere in your thinking. If that's you, you might have found these words challenging and convicting. Or if you have been challenged or convicted that you've left love out of your assessment of Christianity, do keep listening. We're going to look now at what Christian love looks like. We're going to see where we have to go to find this love, to experience this love and to know true spiritual life. So in the life of a church, love is essential. And if we need this love, if we need to be showing this love, well, what does it then look like? Uh, Here's where we move on to verses 4 to 7. Love is essential, and love is also extensive. Love is extensive. And what we get in this compact next paragraph is a wonderfully concentrated summary of all the great qualities of love. There's 15, I think, aspects of love shown in these four verses. And did you notice here that love is not so much described as like with lots of adjectives? It's as if love itself has become a person. It's been personified by Paul. And so love behaves in a certain way. Love is a doer. Love does things. So we're being taught here that you can't truly love without showing love. And so here are the things that love does. Remember, these words weren't written for a wedding ceremony in Corinth. Actually, by this point in the letter, as the church have sat around to listen to it, they're realizing that Paul's been writing them a bit of a rebuke. And as they hear these wonderful things that love does... One of the things Paul's doing is he's exposing how the, way, the ways in which this church has acted contrary to love. So if we, do, we were to flip round some of the, the words in verses 4 to 7 and maybe put their opposites in there, we'd, we'd feel the force of this. So we've been seeing in recent weeks that the church in Corinth was a place not of patience but of impatience, of unkindness. When it came to spiritual gifts or worldly status, there was an awful lot of envy floating around. And we've heard on more than one occasion in this series that there was great danger in the amount of pride and boasting that was happening in this church family too. So just to give you an example, turn back quickly to chapter 8, verse 1. Here's a good contrast between... uh, what the Corinthian church prioritized and what Paul's saying about love here. Chapter 8, verse 1. What does it say there in the second half of that verse there? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, this, this pride, this envy from the culture around the church in Corinth, well, it had spilled into the church. But that behavior was all incompatible with love. And as we today don't just sort of shine these verses onto Corinth and to other people, but as we hold them up as a mirror on our own hearts and our own lives, we too realize, don't we, that we fall fall far short of these qualities. But there's good news for us here, because what Paul's doing is he's painting a picture for us of what God is like. In particular, he's showing us That in the life of Jesus, in the life of God's Son, we see all these loving qualities perfectly 
displayed. These words that we we are so familiar with about how great love is and what it does. Well, this is how God loves his children in Jesus. It is truly wonderful to know a God who is like this and to experience his love. So instead of our name, let's put Jesus' name into these words, for this is who he is. Verse 4, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and Jesus always persevered. The love of Jesus is truly extensive. It's vast. So having loved his disciples who were in the world, we're told, Jesus showed them the full extent of his love by going to the cross for them. Have you experienced this love yourself from Jesus? Have you responded to this love? Have you ever come to a point where you've said, yeah, I need somebody to love me like this and I can find nobody else to do it apart from the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ? If you're yet to experience this kind of love, come to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Put your life in his hand. His love compelled him to to leave the glory of heaven, to come and rescue loveless sinners like us. He offers forgiveness. He offers new life, eternal life in him. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is the loving offer of Jesus to you today. None of us are naturally loving like these verses. You don't step into a church building and become better at loving just by being here. But in Jesus, through faith in him, we can know forgiveness for our failures. And we can know the power to change. And so those who have experienced this love, those of us who follow this Jesus, we are called to imitate him. God has shown us great love in Jesus, and he's poured the spirit of his son into our hearts so that we might reflect this love, that we might express this same love more and more in our life together as church. This love is extensive. It's to be shown in every aspect of our relationships with one another. And so to pick up some of the the things that love does from these verses... The church family is called to be a place where no one is dishonored, where we don't gloat over one another's misfortunes, a place where we are kind to one another, where we are not easily angered by one another. The love of Jesus should be influencing the way we conduct ourselves. So, for example, middle of verse 5 there, love is not self-seeking. This is exactly how Jesus behaved. He did not seek his own interests, but he, instead he, he came to focus on the needs of those he came to serve. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. 
to give his life as a ransom. And as Jesus died on that cross in our place, all our sin was being paid for once and for all, never to need payment again. Just like we sang earlier in one of our first songs, the the just God was satisfied completely to look on Jesus and the punishment he bore, the wrath he bore, and to pardon us so that there is no more debt outstanding, that we can be free, we can be forgiven, and that can be so forever. And so one of the ways God demonstrates his vast love to us is in not counting our sins against us. If you're trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, then God is not storing up some extra punishment for you. He's not keeping a record of all your wrongdoing and how much you now owe him. As verse 5 says, love keeps no record of wrong. This is yet another way we're called to express our love for one another as a church family. We are not to be those who store up records of one another's wrongdoing, waiting for the day where a score can be settled or we can gloat as somebody gets their comeuppance. That is not Christian love. And just as Christ set his face to Jerusalem and he didn't shrink from the the agony of the cross, so love that is shaped by Christ will persevere, as verse 7 says. Love does not give up on people. It perseveres. So those who have experienced this love of Christ will themselves start to love like Christ. There'll be those who are growing gradually in these different extensive aspects of love. If you want to find somebody who's a spiritually mature Christian, look for someone who is loving their church family and doing it well, doing it like these verses. Again, let's examine our our own hearts as we read about what love is and what love does. Can we say these things of ourselves as we follow after Jesus? Verse 4 to 7 again, let's maybe put our own names in the place of love. This is a bit harder to do this time. As we do so, we'll be reflecting, are we those who are patient and kind? Can we put our name by those things? Are we those who do not envy, who do not boast, who are not proud? And all the other aspects listed there. I expect what we'll find is that we'll think some, yeah, in a small way, are true for us. If you spot those, then thank God that by his grace, you're able to reflect something of his love. Then we'll spot other ones that we know are the the least true ones for us. And when we spot those, again, we pause and thank God for his grace to us and pray that he might help us with these aspects of love that we really struggle with. Maybe there's some areas you you know you're growing in or you'd like to grow in more. Or maybe there's some areas that you've seen somebody else in the church family really grow in. Let's encourage one another and support one another when we see signs of growth and when we'd love to love more like this. Growing to reflect this extensive love of Christ in our 
church community. It's a lifetime project. It's one we need each other to accomplish. Love is essential. It's extensive. And thirdly, love is eternal. Love is eternal. So here in verses 8 to 13, another aspect of love is praised in depth. In contrast to the things that are temporary, love is permanent. Love endures to eternity. So in particular, what we've got here is a contrast is being set up between the spiritual gifts that the Corinthians were so excited about, they're over here on the one hand, and then love on the other hand. Uh, And so what's the difference? What's the contrast we're meant to see? Well, on the one hand, in verse 9, as it tells us, these things that the church was excited about, prophecies, well, they will cease. Tongues, well, they will be stilled. And knowledge will, well, it will pass away. These things, verse 10, will pass away when completeness comes. And we're then given an illustration in verse 11 about the difference between being a child and being a man. Uh, Children tend to do childlike things. They talk and they think like children. They reason like children because they are children. Uh, Those things aren't wrong. In fact, they're entirely appropriate if you happen to be a child. But when you grow up, you tend to put the ways of childhood behind you. They're not so appropriate or fitting or suitable for adult life. They are not age-appropriate ways of behaving. That doesn't make them bad things to have been doing when you were younger, but behavior appropriate for one stage in life can turn out to be quite inappropriate at another stage. We know this. Uh, And that's the point here. Even good and useful things can have their day. So here in this discussion about church life, it's the spiritual gifts of prophecy, of tongues or languages, and of knowledge. Paul's saying these things for the church now are are useful. They're, They're appropriate for the church in its current form because they need these things to be built up. But there will come a time when we will not need to say to one another, let's go to church because we will all be gathered around the throne and around the Lamb of God. We will be the church glorified. This is our future as church together, to be made perfect, to be made whole, to be raised, to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness reigns. At that point in our relationship with God, Well, our whole relationship with God, our experience of God, our knowledge of God will enter a new level, a perfect level. And it's not ever possible to fall from that level when we get there. So John the Apostle writes in his first letter, When Christ appears, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. If we pick up this idea in verse 12 in our passage, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. In that glorious new age, the church will no longer need to be built up. will no longer need to help each other 
to grow because we will have reached the goal, perfect maturity. And so the gifts needed to build up church now will reach their expiry date. We won't need the gifts that help us now with our, with our partial, incomplete knowledge of God, with the struggles that we have in applying His Word to our, our lives. Those gifts will no longer be needed. They, they will not be present anymore. But love will be present. Love will be there forever. And gifts are given for a short time. Love endures to eternity. Along with faith and hope, we're told love will remain. And the greatest of these is love, Paul writes. We're not quite sure why that is. Maybe it's something to do with the fact that faith and hope have some sort of realization when that age comes. Maybe it's because love is is the one of the three that is so other-centered and has no necessary benefits for the giver. But either way, love will be present in glory. Prophecies, other spiritual gifts, they will not be. There will be no need for them, no place for them. So as we conclude, let's remember that the point of this chapter, the point of this section has been to encourage the church now in the present now in our life together, to be working on those things that, that, that are going to endure to eternity into God's future. So we've been shown how love is far superior to spiritual gifts, how love has lasting eternal value. And so the challenge for us, therefore, becomes, will we pursue love more than we pursue spiritual gifts and abilities? Will we invest time, each of us, in, in knowing the love of God to us in Christ, in, in growing more in it, in our appreciation for it? For our service as part of the church body, as we've seen, it's only truly effective if it flows from this love. Love is essential. It's extensive. It's eternal. It's never, ever a mistake to to show the love of Jesus Christ to somebody, to demonstrate the love of Christ in our relationships with one another. Because it's that love, it's those loving actions that have eternal significance. It's that love whose influence, whose blessings will carry over to eternity after everything else, even the great useful stuff for now, has faded away. So if you really, really want to make a difference with your life, and do something that will count for eternity. Love people like Jesus. Let's pray. Let's take a moment to uh, reflect on these words and ask ourselves, uh, maybe where, where have I been neglecting this love? Where have I been inspired to show this love? What can I do to know this love of Christ more?
Our Father, your love for us in your Son, Christ Jesus, is so high, it's so wide, it's so deep and so long, it is truly vast. Lord, we pray that we may each know that love more and more, that we may each show this love more and more until we enter into your loving eternity. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.